turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're going to begin right at the end of chapter 1 and verse 23 this evening. Uh, I'll remind you that, uh, that this 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the church at Corinth, is probably the third letter. Uh, Paul makes references in this letter to a letter that came between the first and the second that we don't have. Uh, so all, all we know about that middle letter is what we get from Paul's statements here in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul had intended to visit the church at Corinth, but he was receiving reports about that church and, uh, and significant problems that they were having with sin, and he's correcting them. Uh, the second letter that he wrote was apparently sharper than the correction in the first letter. You, you heard this evening in 1 Corinthians 11 that he took them to task for the way that they were observing the Lord's Supper. And apparently in the intervening letter, he had even sharper words for them of correction. He had intended to visit them, but instead thought better of it and decided not to. And for this reason and other reasons, people in the church at Corinth have begun to accuse Paul of being a liar and a manipulator. And Paul, in what we refer to as 2 Corinthians, Paul is, is answering those charges. He's been doing it nearly since we started the letter. Uh, this evening, in these verses, he's going to explain to them again. Uh, he explained last week what he meant and why he didn't come, but it was more big picture, sort of theological defense of himself. Tonight, he's going to give a practical explanation for it. And what we're going to find because the context here for us is a bit removed, isn't it? Uh, it's not we that were not visited, nor we that failed to visit. Uh, and so it's the, the, the historical setting here helps us understand what's happening, but otherwise has little uh, meaning for us tonight. Instead, what I want you to see as I read, it's just a few verses. We're just going to read through chapter 2, verse 4. What I want you to see tonight is how Paul models loving relationship. It's one of the, the most difficult relationships uh, that, that he's engaged in here because he, he's not only in a sort of pastoral relationship with a congregation that he has suffered for and that he has loved well, and now they are saying these things about him and rejecting his ministry. It's not just this, but Paul planted this church. These are his sort of spiritual children. He will say in another context to another uh, congregation that he planted, uh, do, do you not owe me more respect and love because of how I have brought the gospel to you? Tonight, Paul's going to explain why he did what he did. And behind all of it is love, even though we don't see the word love occur until the very last line of the reading. The truth of that love permeates everything Paul has to say in these few short verses. Let me pray and we'll read our text for tonight. Father, thank you so much that we have this great model uh, in Paul, and he himself learned it from Christ. And so all of us turning our faces towards Christ tonight, uh, being turned by Paul's example, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts uh, that we would be a people who know and learn how to say difficult things in love. That we would love one another well so that even when words of correction are required, Father, they would be uh, tempered. Uh, that there would be a, a holy uh, fear even that our words might be misconstrued. That we would do all that is in our power uh, to speak the truth in the most loving way as we live together together. 
waiting for Christ to return. I pray that you would do this in our hearts, even this evening, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. Paul says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This evening, uh, I just want to consider a few things. Uh, Approaching these verses from the perspective of of Paul, who's responding to these things in love, uh, it's it's a bit like a diamond that as you turn it, uh, it's the same diamond, but it keeps changing its character, and there's so many facets, so many things we could draw out of these few verses this evening, but I want to focus first on the fact that love wants the best for others. As I said to the children tonight, this is a simple truth, but one that I think we practice until the Lord takes us home, Uh, one that that probably very few of us ever feel like we've absolutely mastered. Love wants the best for others. Uh, Paul is, and and, and I I feel an affinity with Paul in this, because uh, as a pastor, there's a dynamic here that I can understand one in which you, you pour yourself out for others, and, and you, maybe you don't always do that for the best motives, we're, right? We're mixed motives, uh, but, but there are people that you have helped and helped and helped, and the very first moment they have any cause to say anything about you, they rise up against you. And, and listen, there is probably, there are a few examples, other than maybe if you were to say something about my wife or my children, that have made me want in my life to rise up and sting with my words, then when somebody I feel like I have, have suffered for turns on me, especially when it's for something that's not true. Now, that dynamic exists in all of our relationships. But there's something about that pastoral relationship that I, I find so easy to associate with in Paul. Paul, uh, you remember Paul's story, Right? This is Paul who goes into synagogues and is drug out of them and stoned and left for dead. This is Paul who has, has given everything up in life in order to be on the mission field for Christ and has suffered and suffered and suffered tremendously. And he suffered for the sake of the church at Corinth. And the very first time they find some reason to accuse him to reject him, they take that reason up and they run with it. Of all people in all situations, Paul, who is himself brilliant and who is himself able to sting with words, look at how Paul addresses them. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again. 
Even in the letter that he writes that, that in order to, to provide some distance as they read so that there would perhaps be not quite as much passion, maybe a letter would be more effective so that he's not there in person to interact with them and they can absorb the letter and think about the letter. And even as he writes the letter, he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Despite what has happened to Paul, Paul knows that the church at Corinth is the church of Jesus Christ. He knows that these are brothers and sisters. Listen to the the language of confidence that he uses with them. He says in the end of 24, "...but we work with you for your faith, for you stand firm in your faith." Or again, down in 3, he says, "...for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all." Paul does not reject them. Paul does not use his brilliant learning and his facility with the the Greek language in order to tear down, in order to wound and to cause pain. Instead, though Paul needs to say hard things, and though those hard things are going to wound, the motive in saying them is entirely love. He wrote, to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Love wants the best for others. Now, love wants the best for others is an easy truth. Not only easy to understand, it's easy to live out, isn't it? As long as others want the best for me, right? As long as as we walk through the world, everyone around us is, uh, is, is loving us well and only saying affirming things and building us up and, and providing the things that we want or the things that we need. It's very easy to turn around and very graciously uh, and magnanimously love others well. It's, it's in the reality of the world that this truth has to be applied. Love wants the best for others when others don't want the best for you. Maybe it's a little easier for us to begin to wrestle with this if we remember we don't always want the best for others either, do we? We move through the world being sinned against and sinning against others. And we want forgiveness when we fail. We need to give forgiveness, extend forgiveness when others fail against us. Paul's been sinned against, and especially in his ministry as an apostle, he needs to address the problem. He knows when he does so, it will cause pain, but that's not his desire. He doesn't do it in order to cause pain. Rather, he wants them to know that he loves them. We talked about this in a previous week. Paul can't ignore the attack against his ministry. He's called by God, sent out to this work, and an attack against Paul and his ministry is an attack against the one who sent him. Paul must stand up for the call that God has placed on his life. And in so doing, he's going to wound, but that's not his motive. Sometimes in our callings, when we have authority, especially that authority is challenged and we take it personally. I think uh, for those who, who have had children, especially as those children have gotten a little older, you, you know what I'm talking about. We take personally when our children disobey us. We take it as a personal attack, an affront against our authority. Uh, we, we interpret it as disrespectful, and it is, right? But parents, how are we tempted to react in those cases? I will tell you, uh, and I don't think my, my experience is unusual, we're tempted to remind them of the respect that is owed to us 
by cutting them. You disrespect me, and it will be painful. Right? Now, you may not think that. None of us, I hope, think that. But this beast rises up in us, doesn't it? Too often. And if you don't wrestle with this, thanks be to God. I'm sure you probably have other areas of your life that you're working on. But this is a common one for all of us, not just as parents, but in any role that we have. Paul gives us this model, this model that he learned from Christ, that we are to seek the good of those who hurt us. Sometimes in these situations, we need to offer correction, right? When a child disrespects a parent, correction is required, and the correction is not typically going to be received uh, very well, regardless of, of the way the correction is handled. Love should motivate us as parents and not a desire to harm as teachers, as elders. This is a lesson our elders here have have learned really well as we go about the work of church discipline, whether that's informal discipline, when we, we simply have to sit down with someone and say, this is sin, right? You need to turn away from this, or it's formal discipline where we have moved past that informal element and we've moved into a formal process whereby we must, as a session, Say to a member of the church, this is sin, and it leads to death. And if you will not repent of it, there are means that God has given us as a session to impress upon you the seriousness of your sin. And I can tell you, we have sat together as a session in tears, even as Paul describes here, as we have agreed that something must be said and what it is that we're going to say together with one voice. In so many of our relationships, even just with peers, there are opportunities to speak words of correction. Why do we speak them and how do we speak them? We need to follow the example that Paul gives us here. They need to be spoken, not just in a loving fashion, right, but motivated out of an actual love for one another. There's a big difference between those two, and that's often where it goes wrong, that there's not actually love motivating it, and so it's said in in a loving way, which most of the time the other person can see right through, right? We've got to be motivated by an actual love for this person to speak in such a way that though it may wound, though it may cause pain, is genuinely motivated by love for the other person. Paul puts this example on display for us this evening in such a helpful way, uh, impressing upon the church at Corinth his desire not to cause them pain, but out of love to speak the truth to them about where they are going wrong. It's not so difficult, is it, to understand how that can be loving? Love, our second point this evening, love requires the truth to be told even when it's hard. Love requires the truth to be told even when it's hard. Notice that Paul's love and desire not to cause pain does not mean that he avoids conflict entirely or just lets it go. It has to be addressed, and he knows that when he addresses it, it's going to cause pain. That's not his objective, but he has to do it anyways. We live in a world where so-called faith 
has been privatized to such a degree that often, even among fellow believers, there's this idea that we're not allowed to say hard things to one another. We're not allowed to, to, to point out to one another areas of sin in our lives. That idea seems to be that if the thing we want to say isn't affirming, then it's motivated by a desire to hurt. And that could not be further from the truth. In fact, the biblical model to which we are called and which is put on display for us in Christ and in Paul here is in fact not this at all. We do not affirm people in their sin, but instead we speak the truth to them in love. It's a warning. Sin, as I said earlier, and as the New Testament teaches us, sin leads to death. How then can we love one another and not point out for one another where we are engaged in sin. It's absurd, this idea that if you are not speaking affirming words to somebody, that you somehow are not loving them. Parents do not speak encouraging words to a child wandering into a busy street or who is determined to put their hand on a hot stove. Rather, out of love for the child, they will speak words of truth, which may indeed cause the child to have hurt feelings. Of course, these words should be true. They should be appropriate to the setting, not calculated to hurt the child's feelings, but certainly to impress upon the child the truth. This is how we ought to be living with one another. It's, it's not only true between parent and child, this, the nature of this relationship, this particular dynamic that we're called to, but between the pastor and the parishioner, between friends who both know and love the Lord. And as children grow into adulthood, it includes, again, always carefully and respectfully, speaking words of correction to parents. Husbands and wives need to speak such words to one another as often as they're necessary. The world may be losing this truth, but we must not. Refusing to speak the truth and instead speaking only words of affirmation in the face of sin is not simply an absence of love, but in fact appears to be the opposite of love. It's not a neutral act, but a withholding of a loving act, a, refuse, a refusal to love someone when we will not say, what is required. We won't point out to them lovingly how they have wounded us or some sin that they are engaged in, something that will tear them down. And of course, it's not only a love for the other person when we point it out, because sin never affects just the sinner, does it? But it creates a mess for everyone around the sinner. It creates a mess for everyone in relationship with that person as the consequences of that sin unfold. Sometimes in the context of a church community, how many of us have belonged to churches where fighting has broken out, people have left the faith over it, and people have been deeply wounded by it, and the ninth commandment is broken without restraint. What a mess. The church of all places should be different, shouldn't it? The church of all places should be a place where we speak the truth to one another in love. And that's what we see Paul doing and modeling for us here. I, I want to close with this tonight. Remember, James says the tongue is a powerful and dangerous thing. If what you heard tonight was only that we must speak out to correct those around us in their error, 
then you've only heard half of the lesson this evening. I want to leave you with this because it is so difficult and we are so prone to do it poorly. We must be motivated by love in our speech. And that motivation must temper our speech and shape it. No matter how well motivated and kind, correction often stings. And this lays an even greater burden on us when we speak up, not to offend unnecessarily. Do you hear what I'm saying here? If we must, if we are bound to speak the truth to one another about areas of sin in our lives... And if we are inclined because of our sinful nature, when that is brought to our attention, to rise up, to want to wound the one who has said it, if we are inclined not to receive that correction well, how much more responsibility does the one who is pointing it out have to do so lovingly and patiently and of of all things motivated by love for the one to whom they're speaking? It lays an even greater burden on us when we speak up, not to offend unnecessarily, not to, to be surprised if the response is initially defensive. The necessity of speaking that love places on us is not a license to offend. And if you've been in the church for very long, you've known that person who felt like they had a license to offend because they knew the Word of God so well. And they were blind to all their own sin and all too happy to point everyone else's sin out. This truth that we're to hold one another accountable, call one another to obedience to Christ and to His Word is not a license to offend. This is why I say this is such a difficult thing to do. And especially when we are speaking these words in a context in which we have been wounded. Someone has spoken in a way that was calculated to cause pain. We've got to resist every urge to lash out. Resist every urge to cause pain in return. And motivated entirely by love for that image of God, that image bearer that God has placed in your life, who's trusting in Christ and repenting of their sins, as your brother or sister in Christ is loved by Christ despite their sin, just as you are loved by Christ, despite your sin, this is who we deal with. We're called to do it carefully and in love. Paul gives us an excellent example of this this evening. We're going to find, and I don't think I'm, I'm ruining the end of the story, but as we get near to the middle of the book and Paul begins to wrap up his defense, we find out that Timothy has come back from Corinth. That second letter that stung has been received by the church at Corinth, and they are broken by it. Paul's approach here is effective. God has worked through what Paul wrote in that second difficult letter, and the people at Corinth are stung by it and broken by it and eager to be restored to fellowship with Paul, and he rejoices in it. I hope that we will be a people both as a congregation and individually in our families and in our relationships with those in the community around us who are not quick to turn and cut with our tongues when we are hurt, but instead are ready out of love to speak the truth and to be reconciled. Let's pray.